Gateway, I'd like to introduce, or in some cases, reintroduce you to uh, Greg Mitchell. Greg was a part of our, I don't know what the hum is, but I'll keep talking. Greg was part of our youth group here a number of years ago. You can come on over a little closer, Greg. And then went to Virginia Tech, who beat Ohio State last night. Yes. (laughs) And then Greg spent the year and a half after his time at Virginia Tech in North Africa. So, Greg, who are you? How did this whole journey start? Well, let's see. I moved to Ashburn when I was in fifth grade, and I lived and grew up in the same neighborhood as the Allens. So that's, that was my first point of contact relationally with, with Gateway. And they were really enjoyable to get to know. Dawson was my age, so Dawson and I were really close friends. Dawson is our middle sign, for those of you who don't know our children. There you go. Dawson Allen. Yep, the little one. Not necessarily <laughs> the best looking, but handsome yeah. nonetheless. Um, yeah. This is being recorded, Greg. Okay. (laughs) So anyways, yeah, I met the Allens mainly through Dawson. Well, one summer, Dawson invited me to go to a summer camp with Gateway. And I knew that it was like church and Christian related. But what I heard was summer camp with kids my age, I'm in. So I went. (laughs) And as I was there, I was was trying to understand and find my place in the crowd. And I felt really out of place, to be honest. There was just something different about the kids there that I have never seen before. So I pulled a, aside the youth pastor and said, hey, there's something different that these kids all get that I don't. What is it? So he shared the gospel with me for the first time and explained who Jesus was. And it was really the first time that I was ever introduced to Jesus was through this youth pastor at Gateway. So this was in the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of high school. And then from there, not much really changed. So I had this experience. It was like I was introduced to the man, but didn't really have a relationship with him. So not much changed soon after that. So you heard the gospel, you heard the, the story of Jesus, as you said, an introduction, but it wasn't transformational for you. Right. And that would happen later. So yeah. how did that happen, Greg? Well, so then Doss and I, once again, we continued on from Broadburn High School, now on to school at Virginia Tech. And that first semester at Virginia Tech, my freshman year, I knew some upperclassmen, which if you know upperclassmen, that means you know where the parties are. So I just pursued the party life. Um, that's who I was. <laughs> Supposed it, it, to say you know where the library is, Greg, but that's... Sorry, I'm just being honest up here, Ed. <laughs> it's true, though. I didn't know where it was. <laughs> Your parents are not here, and it's no, a good no, thing. Yeah, no. <laughs> so Dawson and I, which isn't very conducive to uh, learning and academics, lived in the largest all-male dorm in the East Coast at the time. <laughs> a thousand men all in one dorm is not conducive to learning. And it wasn't conducive to my life, really. So I, I, yeah, I pursued drinking and girls. That's pretty much, that was the staple of my life. That's what defined me. I lived for the weekends, and, and that's what I pursued. And I carried on this lifestyle up until even winter break when I came back home. So I'm the oldest, just to give you some context, I'm the oldest of three boys. There's two younger brothers. They're twins. They're younger than me. So as an oldest child, I always try to be someone that my parents can be proud of, that my little brothers can look up to. So when I came home for winter break, I was conflicted with who I was and my identity, but it didn't change my actions at all. So I still went out to New Year's Eve party, and I woke up the next morning. Well, a girl shook me, woke me up the next morning, and I kind of came to my senses and realized, oh no, we're in my, my parents' basement. There's no hiding at this point. I could hide as much as I wanted down in Blacksburg at Virginia Tech. But at home, I couldn't. I'm sorry. You, a girl woke you up. Yes. Oh, no, I'm in my parents' basement. Right. Okay, I'm just going yeah. ahead. Yeah. 
No, yeah, feel free to articulate. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, go ahead. So a girl woke me up. We're in my parents' basement. Immediately, I think, oh, man, I need to mitigate this situation. I need to sneak her out. So I start bringing her upstairs, and I open the door, and my family's awake eating breakfast. You want to repeat that one? No. (laughs) I think they they heard it. (laughs) That speaks for itself. So that day, I drove her home, came back, and I just spent the day thinking, like, what in the world is my life? Is this really what I want it to be defined by? And really, the pattern of the world and what you hear in college is that drinking in girls is, is the ultimate good. That's the supreme. You have arrived. Good. And I never heard friends talk about the morning afters. But because I had this kind of most shameful experience of my life in front of my parents, it, it got me questioning, so what, is this what I have to live for? Is these morning afters? Because I, finally I was facing reality. So I said, there's got to be something else. So I started pursuing a, a Bible study that I knew about in my dorm room, run by a crew formerly called Camps Crusade for Christ. And I got involved, and that's where I learned the gospel, learned the everyday nature of walking with Jesus, and I got involved. Hmm. So you spent the last three years, I know because I would hear a little bit of this, growing increasingly connected to crew and part of crew's ministry, and then you were also studying yeah. architecture. Yeah, so my undergrad was in industrial design. Uh, Okay, yeah. Yep, so I'm growing. I'm doing ministry with crew, leading Bible studies, even with Dawson Allen. And so what am I going to do next? And call a query begins to take shape in your heart and in your life, okay? Right, yeah. So you have those natural transition moments when you're reaching graduations, the, oh, no, what's next? The past, you know, 20 years of my life have already been kind of pre-planned for me. So I had this whole new way of thinking and making decisions. So I was weighing the options. Do I join staff with crew full-time? Pause, great. That's interesting. So there's a whole new way of thinking and making decisions. Absolutely. What do you mean? Yeah. Well, my default mode of thinking would have been, okay, well, I just spent four years studying design. I'll go into the design field. But I realized that half my life, a lot of my life, was dictated by experiencing the gospel through community and through relationships through crew. So I was weighing the options. Okay, am I going to pursue full-time ministry or full-time vocation and live missionally as a designer? Okay. So I was weighing those options, and I never, ever really wanted to join staff with crew. I wanted to remain a volunteer and stay partnered, but I felt thriving in the world of design and living missionally within it. But then this interesting opportunity came up where I found out about one of Crew's unique ministries overseas in North Africa. In North Africa, it's a closed country, so it's illegal to exist as Crew and proselytize there. And I found out, it was basically option C was presented to me. It's always option C that we never see, and then it comes. <laughs> and then really, I mean, I sort of had an Isaiah moment in his calling where I just said, here I am, send me. I'm up for anything. Just send me. Just put me in a place where I'll thrive, be able to use my strengths to glorify you. So you end up feeling led to go to North Africa, to a closed country, and it kind of gave you a unique opportunity, Greg, to be who God has made you and to use your experience and your education in a part of the world where folks don't ordinarily run into Christians. Exactly. So tell us about that. So... The more I got to learn about our undercover platform there, I realized, oh, wow, my gifting really helps. I failed to mention that I I stayed one extra year at Virginia Tech and got my master's in architecture. So I was thinking, okay, surely, like, this isn't going to go to waste. And so I was presented with this opportunity to help, you know, kind of be creative director of this ministry platform. So here you can see a picture of me, and I'm up front in uh, in a closed campus in a closed country, and it's 
It's hard to see, but there's Arabic on the, on the wall. So here I am. I've never been overseas, mind you. I'm just completely living by faith, stepping out into the unknown. And I was meeting up with this one student. He said, Greg, you have your master's degree. So campuses are closed, so you can't just like freely walk on campus. We had to figure out creative ways just to get on campuses to meet university students because they are our primary ministry focus. And one student said, well, Greg, you have your master's. Why don't you come teach us? I was like, eh, I don't know if that works here. But then I was like, then again, it's Africa, so we'll see. So we wrote a proposal, and they, they accepted me. So here I am teaching in front of a university classroom. And what I was teaching them was creative storytelling. So if I equip and enable them to, to share their story, then it enables them to learn. So I have a platform to share my story along the way as we do relationship. Wow. Now, you told Jan and I this one morning when we met. We don't have time for a lengthy explanation, Greg, but I was... It's powerful to me that you were talking about how in your storytelling you present vulnerability and this is unknown to them. For many, it unlocks a door. Right. So the country that I live in is 99.99% Muslim, which means that they live in an honor and shame culture where even as women wear veils and cover up in their clothing, really all their hearts are covered. They never show their true self. So we need to teach them how to be vulnerable. So through photography, I would teach them how to tell their story. So usually, Real quick, yeah, just tell us how that works. In my example, I'll take a picture of a broken window, and I'll start asking questions like, how is this window broken and such? And then I talk about how this best represents my life right now and why. I tell them that I really want to replace that window because I'm not okay with looking and feeling broken because it's uncomfortable. But over time, I've realized that it's okay to even, like, within a family structure or in your own identity, it's okay to live with brokenness if you see the, all the, a bunch of broken windows all around you. Hmm. So I help you know, model vulnerability in front of them, and then you put a picture in front of them, and I now ask, Ed, you know, uh, pick which picture best represents your and life you, and why. a variety of... There will be uh, a set of 50 photographs. Okay. Uh-huh. You choose one, and now you share Tell. with me how that image best represents your, your life and why. And this will be probably likely the first time you ever share your life, your true life with someone, because now I've created a safe place for you to project your story onto. Have there been opportunities to step into the story of Jesus? And oh, yeah. God's love conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So here's a picture of us meeting with students. We meet guys with guys, girls with girls. You can go to the next one as well. On the left here... Oh. That's a weird hairdo. <laughs> I had a mohawk, yeah, my first year. <laughs> so here's kind of an everyday life picture of me. So on the right is an imam. He's a blind imam. An imam is like an Ed Allen version of the mosque. So uh, like basically a pastor of a, a mosque. And to my right is one of my students. And we were meeting together, and that story that I shared about the shameful experience leaving my basement, I shared that story through this photography conversation. And in the midst of it, he leaned over and said, hey, Greg, you know, we all do those things, but we never talk about it. He goes, why are you so free to share with such boldness? And you're, like, you actually seem comfortable with this fact that you've had this shameful experience. And I tell them about how Jesus has set me free because his perfection has now been imputed as my perfection, which ultimately frees me to to be who I am. And all God's people said, (laughs) yeah, so what's next? So I'm going back, yeah. So I've decided there's just too many stories out there, such as, as Adam's, and I thrived and seen myself be used by God in ways that I can never imagine, both with my skills and gifting as well as just the, the fruit of the ministry that we've had there. There's a two to one million ratio between how many full-time Christian workers are living missionally in the Arab world. So the full-time Christian workers for every one million Muslims 
around the world. And that's something I can wake up in the morning to live for. So yeah, so I've decided to move back long term. All right, I'm going to pray for Greg. And so let me pray for Greg. And you know, the Bible talks about laying hands on one another to pray. I don't think there's anything magical about that. I just think it, in part, it reminds us that we're connected to one another. And so uh, at Gateway, we do that. It's a little oppressive if all of you come up here and lay hands on Greg. So I'll lay my hand on Greg. And if you would, just stretch your hand out toward Greg and join me in praying for him. Father, I want to thank you so much for this young man that you've created, that you love, that you have filled. We're stunned. Ask that you would bless him in his ministry. Pour your spirit out on him. God, I pray that he would walk with you. Uh, bless his marriage. We pray for Stephanie, right? Pray, God, that you're protecting her. And knit their hearts together, Lord. Do a work in them that will unite them and prepare them for what's next. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Greg. So this morning we are beginning the wrap-up of our series of lessons in the book of James that we've called Faith That Works. And what we've just heard is a testimony about faith that works. When we've used that title, we've meant it in a couple of ways. It's a double-edged sword, and we've meant it that way. Real faith, true faith, transformative faith, not the kind of faith that maybe Greg had when he was in high school and he heard a story of Jesus and thought, wow, and something may have stirred in him, but it wasn't transformative. Not that kind of faith, but transformative faith. It takes our heart and reshapes it and makes us think differently about how we make decisions. That kind of faith always puts itself into action. It's faith that works. In fact, James goes so far as to say, if your faith is not at work, you probably don't have faith. Not real faith. We also mean it that, you know, faith needs work to be real faith. There is a component of you and I participating with God in this adventure. We have to make decisions. We have to say yes. It's faith that works. And in order for faith to work for us, faith has to work. As I said, this morning and next week we're wrapping up our study of the book of James. And I can't help today but think about Michael. Michael's dad was the music minister at his church for part of his life. And he spent his childhood going to church services on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Michael would say he didn't really understand God, but the idea of God always elicited warm feelings for him. And when Michael was 15 years old, he was on a church youth retreat, and one of the male adult chaperones suggested to him that maybe they needed to talk after one of the evening sessions. So Michael agreed. They found a secluded place in the woods, far away from all the other retreatants, to talk. Michael remembered thinking the invitation was odd and awkward, but he didn't know how to say no. He grew increasingly uncomfortable and a little scared as the talk became suggestive. Michael was fortunate. He was old enough and large enough to not only resist the older man's physical advances, but he was able to get out of the situation after experiencing only some aggressive and very awkward fondling. He was thoroughly embarrassed, as if he had done something wrong. In fact, he felt like he did do something wrong, and he didn't tell anyone about the incident for 11 years until he was a depressed 26-year-old young man. By the time Michael was in his 30s and had a family of his own, he realized that he should be thankful that the experience wasn't much, much worse, because for many people it is. 
In fact, according to Michael, the only real casualty of that horrible, weird night was his faith. Of course I quit going to church, Michael says. But I still believed in God for a long time. Maybe I still do. It's just that faith doesn't really work for me anymore. I also think of Anissa. Anissa's mother was a Christian, and Anissa spent her elementary years in a Catholic school in India. But she felt like she got confusing messages about belief. She actually believed in God and would often pray when she felt like she needed help, but she couldn't keep the idea of God straight in her mind. Anissa guesses now that when she was a teenager, she decided that she didn't really need to have all the details worked out. She just needed to believe. Then somehow in the pursuit of an education, a career, and a family, Anissa's faith slipped away from her. She didn't completely lose it. It's just that faith didn't seem to work for her anymore. There are millions more stories like that, aren't there? Most of us have a story not too different, at least at points in our lives. Maybe you just don't ever really sense God's presence. Not really. And you wonder why. Or you're tired of trying to pray. It feels like you're talking to the wall and it also feels about as effective. Or maybe you're completely disconnected, so you wonder why bother. When you go to church, you don't know anyone and nobody speaks to you anyway. Or maybe you think you're okay. You believe in God. He's like a super kind grandfather who lives in a distant country, but you know you can call on him when you need to. And in God's case, he's probably up there working some things out once in a while anyway. That seems to work for you right now, sort of, but not really. Or maybe you're a dedicated Christ follower. You've been at it for some time. You've turned the keys of your life over to him, but every now and then you lose the narrative. You kind of forget what's next. You wonder what you're supposed to do, honestly. Or maybe you're facing a tremendous trial right now. I got a phone call this week from Ina York. Ina is a missionary that we support, that Gateway supports in the DR. Ina has just heard that she has cancer. Maybe you're facing some kind of trial with health, in your job, with a relationship. How do you face it? What do you do? How exactly do we make faith work? I know all of the spiritual stuff, Ed, that's all well and good, but sometimes I just need to know what to do. How do I make it through? How do I make sense of it? How do I deal? Where did my faith go? Why don't I believe anymore? Well, James 5, 13 through 20 has a word for us, all of us. In this letter, Pastor James offers what I believe, and we've said this a number of times this summer, Pastor James offers what I believe is the most practical advice in the entire Bible. And this passage, the one we're looking at today, is the most practical section of James's extremely practical book. This is a passage about putting on your shoes and going to work. This is purely prescriptive. At the end of this series of very practical admonitions, corrections, and warnings, James says, okay, so in conclusion, here's what you should do. I think we should pay attention this morning. Not only so, but this is James's conclusion. Usually when we've got something really important to say, I know this is the case with me, we save at least part of the punchline for the very end. We want to make a grand exit. We know how important it is to leave our audience with something to think about, so we save some sparkles for the finale. And James does just that. He gathers up all of his most practical what-to-do-next thoughts, and in a flurry, he offers them in an epic, sincerely yours. So this is James's conclusion 
And he's going to tell you and I what to do. And today, I'm going to read from the screen. I don't want there to be any miswording. And I want you to stay seated. Often at Gateway, we go old school and we stand out of reverence for God's Word. But we're going to do it differently today. What I want you to do today is stand up and sit right back down every time you hear the word pray. So I'm going to read James 5, 13 through 20. And I want you to stand up and sit down every time you hear the word pray. If you have a hard time getting up and down, you can do one of these. You just do something that makes you look as silly as everybody else. So James 5, 13 through 20. We're not going to be long today, and I want to tell you in advance, you may have noticed tables spread around the room. We're going to do some lab work today. So we're going to get right at what James says about lacing up our shoes, and then we're going to do it. We're going to do some lab work. So you stand and sit down every time you hear the word pray. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. So that you may be healed. So that you may be healed. You want to be healed today? That word, biblically, that word is epic. That word is large. That means whatever is here that needs to be moved to here, brought into underneath God's reign and also brought into the kingdom of light and joy and freedom that Greg was talking about. You want to be over here? We'll take whatever's here, confess it, you'll be healed and you're here. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We repeat that. The prayer of a right... Yeah, now, now you're starting with the arms. I'm sorry. It doesn't work for most of you. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. You know what he did. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Right, so he's given us five conditions here as best I can. Take a breath. He's given us five conditions as best I can tell. Trouble. You're in trouble. Happy. Sick. You're in sin. Or you're wandering. And he gives us the prescription for each of those. If you're in trouble, you should pray. If you're happy, you should sing songs of praise. If you're sick, get the elders to pray for you and be healed. If you're in sin, confess and get prayer. If you're wandering, you need someone to rescue. I love what Beth Moore says about this. Look at this on the screen. If we're willing, God is our song when we're happy our escape when we're tempted, our hope when we're despairing, our joy in tribulation, our strength in weakness, and our immortality in dying. We don't need to wonder about James's point here, do we? Your standing and sitting a moment ago made that absolutely clear. No matter what condition you're in, no matter where you are today or what you're feeling, take it to God. Simply put, pray and be prayed for. 
Listen, this morning let's push aside all remnants of spiritual victimism. I made that word up. We are not victims. Pastor James will not allow it. We are not victims of fate. We're not victims of chance, not of biology, not of our boss or our spouse or our inability to find a spouse. We're not victims of our health, not of our opportunities, not of our education or lack thereof. We're not victims of our family. We are not victims. God has given us work to do. Let's do it. Somebody say amen. Again, I like another one of Beth Moore's comments. I've put this up here for you as well. If we pay attention to James and the other inspired writers of Scripture, she says, there is rarely nothing you can do. Being still and know that He is God is a long shot from nothing. Trusting in God in a God you cannot see is a long shot from nothing. Holding your tongue is a long shot from nothing. Submitting is a long shot from nothing. Confessing sin is a long shot from nothing. Resting in Christ is a long shot from nothing. And hear this one really loudly, she says, praying is a long shot from nothing. So here's what we're given to do, and then we're going to do it. Number one, if you're in trouble today, pray. I didn't say it was easy, but it's not complicated. What if in your next crisis or your next trial, you decided to pray more than you planned? What if in your next trouble, you decided to pray more than you talked about it? What if in your next extreme difficulty, you decided to pray more than you worried? Now someone is thinking, I'm in trouble and I have prayed, Ed, and nothing's happening. So I'm going to give you an acronym today. Some of you have heard this before. I'm absolutely convinced I know what Pastor James would say if he were here to answer that question. I know for a fact what Jesus would say. I've prayed and nothing has happened. I think Jesus would say, well, are you still in trouble? Yes, that's the point. Okay, pray. The acronym is PUSH. Pray until something happens. If you're in trouble today, pray. And if you prayed, pray some more. And if you're tired of praying, then the work begins. Pray. And if you feel like you're praying and your prayers are like speaking to a wall, then pray. Pray until something happens. Second, if you're happy today, sing a song of praise. (laughs) Years ago, I was in a meeting with a group of people in another church. I promise you it was in another church. I'm not trying to hide anyone's identity. In a meeting with another church, and some person was in this meeting who was a royal jerk. We might even use other terminology, but we wouldn't use it in church on Sunday morning, and I couldn't believe it. Incredibly offensive to everyone in the room, and especially one uh, woman in particular. And at some point, you know, she, not to embarrass herself and everyone else, she kind of tearfully gets up. She leaves the room. Not long after that, the meeting dismisses and one of the leaders in this church looked at me and said you know there's just not enough hitting in the church (laughs) I would say in light of what James said this morning there's not enough singing in church if you're happy today if your child started school this week and you're psyched about their class and their classroom and you're psyched that they're out of your hair then go home and on Monday (laughs) 
on Monday afternoon, I want you to make up a song of praise. I'm so happy the kids are out of my hair, and I won't sing this out loud. I do not dare, but thank you, Jesus. I love them, and you've given them to me, but I'm glad they're gone. Or if you're... If you're engaged, I want you to make up a song and sing a song of praise. Somebody, if you're happy this week about your job, if you're happy about a relationship that you're in, I don't care how bad you are. If you're really bad, don't sing it for the rest of us. But make up a song of praise and sing. If you're happy, sing a song of praise. I love there's a section in C.S. Lewis where he's talking about the transition that he made from being an atheist to being a believer in God. And he talks about one of his problems with God was it seemed like the God of the Psalms was always saying, brag about me. Tell me how great I am. Praise me. It didn't make sense to him. That seemed unseemly to C.S. Lewis until he realized that the celebration is a completion of the experience of the joy of the experiencer. I apologize, but I I couldn't help but remember the first time the Patriots won the Super Bowl. Yes! And they're going to repeat this year. I love that shirt. Taylor, I love it. So, in 2001, uh, the upstart New England Patriots with a skinny little replacement quarterback that nobody knew anything about named Tom Brady, who became, of course, the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL. Tom Brady was leading the New England Patriots against the high and mighty St. Louis Rams. Who, you remember? They had this high-flying offense. They were scoring 743 points a game. Kurt Warner was the quarterback. And in the final seconds, Adam Vinatieri kicked a 48-yard field goal, and the Patriots won 20-17. to We were at our home in Ashburn, Diane and I, with our three boys. And this was during the period of our lives when people like Greg Mitchell would once in a while show up at our house. They were all younger. And when that happened, our den turned into bedlam. Our children, who at that point in their lives didn't even like one another, were chest bumping one another and running around, hugging their mother, for crying out loud. (laughs) Listen, I did not have to tell one of them, not one of them, I didn't have to tell them, Now start celebrating, Jordan. Because it was a natural completion of the experience of utter joy. If you're happy today, sing a song of praise. You know, don't miss the point that we can do damage to our relationship when we separate our joy from God. It's spiritually unhealthy. If you're happy, you've got work to do. Go home today and write a song and sing a song of praise. Third, if you're sick, if you're sick, get prayed for, period. Don't be embarrassed. If you're sick, get prayed for. I'm going to give you another acronym. I made this one up, so it's not as good, but let's use it anyway for today. The acronym is GRAB. I want you to get an elder. I want you to receive prayer. I want you to have them anoint you with oil, and I want you to be healed. And all God's people said, that's really hard, but it's not complicated. If you're sick today, I want you to grab. We've got some oil down here. It's special holy oil. You know why? Because somebody in Jesus' name is going to put it on you. Somebody who you have said, 
you know, I believe that you have the character. I'd like to see you lead our congregation. And they're going to put it on you. With the Holy Spirit in them, they're going to touch the Holy Spirit in you, and God is going to do His thing. I want you to grab this morning if you're sick. Now, does God really heal today, Ed? Yes, of course He does. You and I wouldn't be here if He didn't. I have personally been healed. Ask me about it later. It's weird, but it's true. The real question, isn't it, is why doesn't God always heal? And we don't have time to talk about this thoroughly, but I want you to look at something real quick. The Apostle Paul might be, you know, other than Jesus, if you line up healing stories, the Apostle Paul might be like next in line in superstardom. There's even, there are incidences in the book of Acts where they used handkerchiefs that have been prayed over by the apostles and they go wave a handkerchief at somebody and they get healed. How bizarre is that? There are weird things. And healing still happens today. There are those stories today. But amidst all of that, in that world where handkerchiefs are healing people, I want you to see this. Might go to Timothy passage. End of Paul's letter to his disciple Timothy, his second letter, he says this. Timothy, Erastus is in, stayed in Corinth and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. What are we to make of that? <laughs> do, you think, do you think Paul prayed for Timothy? I bet he did. If he didn't, shame on Paul. We got another problem. He left him sick. What do we make of that? Uh, perhaps this. When we're sick, we come to God in faith and we pray in faith knowing that he loves us, he wants our best, and that he's actually engaged in our lives and that he can heal. We entrust ourselves to him and his care and we surrender to his sovereign will and plan. If we're made well, we make up a song of praise. And if we're not made well, we follow the example of Jesus. Hebrews 5.7 tells us this, that God's own Son cried out to the Father to be delivered from death. God the Father heard His cry, but He did not save His Son. The Father knew that an infinitely greater work was being done through the death of the Son, and an infinitely greater reward awaited the Son because of His death. In just the same way, we pray and we trust. James doesn't say this is easy, but it's not complicated and we're not victims. If you're sick this morning, grab. Get an elder, receive prayer, have them anoint you with oil, and be healed. Fourth, if you're in sin today, confess. If you have a besetting habit, you feel ashamed, and you feel powerfully discouraged. Stop it. Stop it. Confess your sin, and be prayed for, and be healed. If you're stuck in something, or something happened this week that was overwhelming to you, you can't believe what you said. You can't believe what you did. You can't believe that you gave your anger free reign. You can't believe what you looked at. You can't believe what you ate. You can't believe what you drank. You can't believe what you bought. You feel guilty and ashamed. Stop it. You're free. Confess your sin, be prayed for, and be healed. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. I can tell you from personal experience, God's presence becomes palpable, and His healing is made immediate when we allow him to represent himself in the presence of a trusted friend. So tell someone. And be specific. 
If you sin, James says, you'll be forgiven. Therefore, it's obvious to James. Look, if you sinned, you'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. What's complicated? Why all this praying for one another, James? Because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It does much. And then like a good preacher, right? James offers us an example. Hey, you guys, he pulls up an example from Jewish Sunday school. You guys remember Elijah? We read all those weird stories about Elijah, those incredible things that Elijah did. You know what Elijah was? Exactly, he was just like you. He didn't float six inches off the ground. Elijah was a man just like you're a man or just like you're a woman. And Elijah prayed and it didn't rain for crying out loud. We can at least do this little stuff. I'm sure of it. Fifth and finally, if you're wandering today, you need to be rescued. That's a word, first of all, to those of you today who may be wandering. You may have drifted 20 degrees away from dead center. You may be far off the path this morning. And I want you to know, humble yourself. You need to be rescued. If you're wandering today, if you feel lost today, if you feel radically disconnected today, you need to be rescued. You don't need to do a little better. You don't need to try a little harder. You need to be rescued. But isn't it interesting? James ends his entire letter. Real focus of this paragraph, that final paragraph, is not to the wanderer, but it's to the rescuer. There's a message here especially pointed toward those of us who need to be on the lookout for rescuing. Listen, Mike and Mary Ann Cannon live right across the cul-de-sac from Diane and I. Mike, I want you to know if you see Diane and I out front and we look like repeatedly over the course of several weeks we're arguing with one another and we're not getting along, I huff off and drive out of the driveway and almost hit a couple of those little kids that are always in the road in our neighborhood. And I'm really mad and you can tell I don't want you to go inside and talk to Marianne about it. I don't want you to go talk to Jan about it. I want you to come rescue me. Some of you see people wandering the hall here on Sunday morning. You'll see it today. And they look downcast and they look in trouble. Don't go get in your car after the church today and Tammy look at Chris and say, wow, Lee and Yvonne, they looked terrible today. Go rescue them. Because when you do, you've brought someone from death to life. You have rescued them. One, when you're in trouble, pray until something happens. When you're happy, sing a song of praise. When you're sick, get an elder, receive prayer, have them anoint you with oil, and be healed. When you're in sin, confess. And if you're wandering, you need to be rescued. And for crying out loud, some of you need to be rescuers. All right, let's do lab work. This morning, we're going to participate in his meal. It's a mercy meal. But if you're one of those things, you need this today. I want you to go back and receive communion today. There'll be a couple of people at each of these stations in the middle. They're going to say, the body of Christ broken for you. This is why the Father heard Jesus' prayer but didn't answer it. Because think of the power and grace that's been revealed to us, been 
made available to us because of that. So you'll go back and you'll hear the body of Christ broken for you. And no matter what church you're part of, if you can receive communion in your fellowship, you can here. You'll take the bread and you'll eat it. And you'll say, thank you, God. And at the end of the day, on the way home, some of you need to sing a song of praise and make it up. I had communion today and it was really, really good. And the person who gave it to me was nice. And that was good too. They don't have to rhyme. Just make it up. And then they're going to say, the blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of your sin. And that's going to remind you, if you have sin in your life, you need to grab someone and you need to say to them, Alex, I need to talk to you. This is happening. And hopefully Alex won't be too shocked. And he won't be. Because Alex messes up too. Trust me, I know him. And so you'll go to Alex, and Alex will pray for you, and you'll be forgiven. And so whatever remnant of shame and guilt is left after that, that's on you. You just got to let that go. Let's do some work. Let's start this by just a time of silent confession. And I'm going to pray that God will draw you where you need to be drawn. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, we have sinned against you. Please, in the name of Jesus, forgive us. Lord, set us free this morning to the point that we can sing songs of praise. Gateway, peace of the Lord be with you. Turn to one another and pass Christ's peace.